Welcome to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. And um, first and foremost, I do want to just thank Adam publicly. He did speak last week. He did a great job. He gave me a chance to have a, a day off. Last, the other week, my wife and I got a chance to go away. And I didn't want to have to work on the message. And so he said he would speak. And he did great. And what's great about him is that he does bring so much energy to the stage. He talked about that. I, you know, people were saying, you know, you guys are both really good. You have such different styles. And I asked Adam, I said, how would you describe, you know, the difference in our styles? And he goes, well, you're like a library. And I'm like a candy store. And I said, that's great. That is true. Yeah, there is like a lot. And I was thinking, you know, if I could just personally get, you know, a fraction, just a fraction of his energy, I think it would still be too loud in the room. Okay. Anyway, but... <laughs> So, but we, if it is your first time, we are in this series called Follow Me. And let me just kind of bring you up to date so you understand what we're doing. In this series, we're taking a couple of weeks, we're not looking just at the teachings of Jesus. Rather, we're really taking an in-depth approach to look at how he taught and how he interacted with other people. Because what you saw on the bumper is this idea that wherever Jesus went, crowds followed him. People loved him. And when you go back and you read the Gospels and you look at the New Testament and you look at the demographic of the people who followed him wherever he went, you'll see that people who were nothing, nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus. And he liked them back. And some way he was able to share truth into their lives, even when it might have been uncomfortable. And they still loved him. They still liked it. And so my hope for this series is that we can use this series as almost like a guide to help Christians as we go out there in the world talking to people about Jesus to help us be less offensive when we do it. Because Jesus never offended anybody. And we want to begin to follow him and his method as we teach others about Jesus Christ. This is an important thing to do because we learn that in a prayer that Jesus made on his last night on this earth, he was talking to God the Father. And he goes to God, all right, tomorrow's the day. Tomorrow, I'm coming back to you. So, so I, I got to pray about our disciples. He goes, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. He goes on. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sen sending them into the world. And then he prays for us Christians who may be in the room today. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. See, I think a lot of times as Christians, we almost feel like, you know, we say yes to Jesus and then we get whisked away to heaven. That's it. That's the ticket. You just say yes and everything else is heaven and we have nothing else to do. But according to this prayer, Jesus has a mission and a specific job for any sing every single person who calls himself a Christian. He wants you to go out in the world and he wants you to talk about Jesus. And that's why we're doing this series. I want to be able to help you be better at doing that job. And every single week, we're looking at different interactions that Jesus had and to see what we can pull from them. This week, we are in a pretty famous passage. It's in Mark 10. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. But as always, it will be on the screen. So we are in Mark 10. It says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. So let's just get all on the same page here because I want to talk to you about this man because this man is the main character in today's interaction. So every single one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about this interaction. 
And each of them gives a different piece of information about this man. And if you compile them all together, what you learn is that this man was young, he was rich, and he was a ruler. Now, what kind of ruler was he? He was a Jewish ruler. But unlike what we've seen in the previous weeks, where we've talked about Jewish leaders who are what are called Pharisees or scribes, those are people who are almost active in ministry, this guy was more like a, like a church deacon, if you're familiar with that term, or a church elder. If you don't know what those are, think board of trustees. This guy wasn't paid by the church, so to speak, but he was high up and he was involved with the church. The most important thing that we learn about this guy is that he was genuine and he was sincere. It says that he ran up to Jesus. He fell on his knees. So unlike in prior weeks where we see Jewish leaders who were looking to test Jesus, who were looking to trap Jesus, who were looking to get in his face, this guy simply wanted an answer. He went to the source. He thought, this guy knows what he's talking about. I'm going to go to this guy for an answer. He's much like us who are here today, just trying to hear a little bit from God. So he runs up to Jesus, falls at his feet, and says, good teacher, he asked, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. So if you've been paying attention, you'll notice that this is the exact same question the Jewish leader asked last week that Adam talked about. Exact same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The reason I want to do these two accounts uh, each week is because I wanted you guys to be able to juxtapose them, to put them up next to each other, and to see how Jesus can be asked the same question And it gives two totally different answers. See, it's important to see this account because what we learn is that people are different. When you're out there and you're having conversations with people, you got to realize that every person you talk to about Jesus has a different background, a different history, different baggage, different hurts, different educational levels, different family experience. And when you are evangelizing, when you are talking to folks about your relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to realize that evangelism, so to speak, isn't one size fits all. That you have to custom tailor your approach to whoever you're talking about. It's why you wouldn't speak to a child the same way you talk to an adult. You custom tailor your conversation based on your audience. Now this guy goes to Jesus and asks what I believe to be the most important question there is, how do I get eternal life, right? It's a $64,000 question, so to speak. I'm not sure if that's the right analogy. I've never seen that show. I think that means it's an important question. It's an important question, okay? It's the question that every church in America wants non-Christians to ask Christians. How do you inherit eternal life? That, this is it. This is the big one. It's game time, right? This is the question, so let me ask you a question. How would you answer this man? I mean, if a friend of yours today, when you leave church today, runs up to you and says, hey, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? Could you answer that question? Remember what Peter said, and we talked about this back in the fall. Peter said this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. He's saying, remember, Jesus is God. Keep that in your heart. But always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That hope he's talking about is the hope of eternal life that you found in Jesus Christ. He goes, when you're out there in the world, get ready. Someone's going to ask you about your faith and Jesus, and you need to be prepared to talk about it. There's a caveat, though. He goes, when you're out there, though, remember, do this with a gentleness and respect. You see, Peter was a a bit of a brash individual. 
kind of flew off the handle sometimes. And he knows that we as Christians, well-meaning as we might be, when we're out there in the world trying to share Jesus, maybe, just maybe, sometimes, we go a little too far and we insult somebody. We go a little too far and we get a little judgmental. And he goes, look, when you're out there talking about Jesus, because that's your job, do it with gentleness and respect. So someone asks us, hey, tell me about eternal life. What are you going to do? I think a lot of us who are Christians who may have been raised in what I'll call large evangelical churches, I think a lot of times we may have gone to Bible studies or classes that actually helped us try to answer this question. And, you're, and you try to go back in your bag of tricks and you go, all right, what did I learn at Evangelism Explosion? What was, the, what, what was I supposed to say when someone... Or, or what were those... I took a four-week Bible study on the spiritual laws. What was... How did I... Or, or oh, my pastor, he always talked about the Roman road. How do, how do I begin? Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry, okay? I don't really know much about this stuff either. I went to a church that taught this stuff. And it, these are just systems to help people talk about Jesus. But we don't use these systems here, so don't worry about it. You're fine. But the reality is that when we as Christians just get a, a whiff that someone might want to talk about some religious things that, oh, maybe... Maybe, just maybe, some of this guy wants to talk about God. We go right to the big guns. We go, hey, do you know who Jesus is? Do you, have you heard about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Okay, and, and, and here's the deal. We're all well-meaning when we go to this question. But far too frequently, we jump to the last step. We just get right to the Jesus part. Because we have been trained to ABC. Always be closing. Get them to say the prayer, get them to sign the dotted line, get them to walk forward for the altar call, get them to raise their hands. Do what you got to do to get them to say yes to Jesus. Yeah, that's well-meaning because Jesus, let's be honest, is the key to eternal life. John in his gospel said, and this is the way to have eternal life. You want to know? Here it is. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one who sent you to this earth. Plain as day. Not a problem. You want eternal life? You got to know Jesus. But Jesus, in the interaction that I'm about to show you, shows us something really interesting. He kind of says, all right, before you get to the Jesus part, because I know you're raring to go, okay, before you ask them, do you know who Jesus is, there's a more pressing issue that we need to deal with. A more pressing question. Before we get to do you know who Jesus is, you might need to ask them, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Because I believe that this is perhaps the most difficult question that exists. Do you know who you are? Do you know your true self? Do you know your true nature? Do you know your own heart? Because we as humans, all we do all day long is we put up facades. I want the world to think this about me. I don't want the world to know about this, so I'm going to put up this. And we spend our lives putting up all these fake walls that we have blinded ourselves from our true self. And what Jesus is going to show you in this story is that people have to find themselves before they can find Jesus. And we miss this step. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. This is not some new agey kind of thing. This is not you got to go out to like Sedona and get some healing crystals and line up your chakra. That's not what we're talking about here. This is you got to get real with yourself. 
you got to figure out who you are as a human when you're stacked up in the light of an almighty God. That's what it means to find yourself. So how does Jesus answer this man? How does Jesus answer the most important question that can exist? How do you get eternal life? So in typical Jesus fashion, he loves, loves to answer a question with a question. So he goes, all right, before we get to the eternal life bit, let me ask you something. Why do you call me good? I noticed you call me good. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God. So why do you call me good? Are you saying that I'm... Because it sounds a lot like you're saying that I'm... Are you implying that what he's subtly doing here is he's planting the seed that he is God. And by pinpointing this idea that God alone is good, it puts this question out there into the atmosphere, specifically for this man. The question is this. What is good? I noticed you used the word good. What is good? Can you talk to me about that? Because this question, what is good, is extremely important to ask, specifically for Americans. Because we throw this term around willy-nilly all the time. But the word good, when you think about it, is wildly subjective. So Adam spoke last week, like I said, because my wife and I went away to vacation. We went up to Charleston, South Carolina. Great little town, recommend it. Charleston, if you've never been, is known to be like the food capital of the South. Everyone said, it's a foodie's paradise. You are going to love it. So we were excited. So we went there. The second night that we were there, we had a chance to go to this very famous restaurant. It's just, I won't tell you the name of it because they're probably watching right now. No, they're not watching. Okay. This restaurant is known as being one of the best restaurants in America. Now, it's not expensive or anything like that. It's just known for its food. So we were excited. We were pumped. The menu comes. We start looking down the menu. And to be honest with you, had a lot of weird stuff, okay? But I saw a pork chop that looked like pretty standard fare. Pork chop, I remember exactly. Pork chop, baked apples, collard greens. How could you go wrong? I go to the waiter. I'll take the pork chop. And then he goes, well, let me tell you about the pork chop. That should have been a red flag right there, okay? He goes, here's what we do with the pork chop. We take all the meat off the bone. And I go, oh, this is Great, less work for me. Then we do a layer of meat. Then we do a layer of fat. Then we do a layer of meat. Then we do a layer. I go, stop, I'll do the chicken, okay? Uh, that's what I said. I wasn't like rude like that, but I was basically like, mm, I'll take the chicken. Thank you very much. And in, like, when he left, I go to my wife, I go, if they think that's good, then we have a very different definition of what good is, okay? Because mm, I'm not interested in that. But this is why Jesus brings up this conversation of good. Because goodness is a stumbling block for the world. Okay? When, when Jesus sends Christians out into the world to speak to people about Jesus, I am letting you know that the vast majority of people that you will run into believe that all good people go to heaven. You're good. You go to heaven. Not a problem. In fact, I would wager that a lot of Christians believe the same thing. All good people go to heaven. Okay, well, what is good? Whose standard of good are you using? Because they told me that pork chop was going to be good, and that pork chop was not good. Okay? Now, 
What was the question the guy asked? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you see anything in this question that's interesting? You see, if we're not paying attention to the conversations that we're having with people, if we're not listening to what they're saying and, and how they're thinking, you will miss key words and key phrases. Jesus heard this question and immediately he zoned in on the word do. Oh, oh, this guy thinks you can do something to get eternal life. I see. I see what's going on. This guy thinks that you can work your way to God. This guy thinks that you can get to heaven based on your own merits, on your own goodness. And when someone says that all good people go to heaven, whether they realize it or not, what they're saying is that based on my own goodness and the things that I've done, I am worthy of God. So Jesus looks at this guy and goes, all right, I see what we're dealing with here. You're looking for a system. You're looking to work your way to God. Not a problem. I can help you with that. He goes, you're a Jewish leader. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud or honor your mother and father. And I think the vast majority of us in this room look at this list and go, yeah, I'm pretty good with that list. And I love the guy's response. He goes, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. He goes, Jesus, this is not a problem. I've never killed anybody. I never cheated on my wife. I'm good to my parents. Basically what he's telling Jesus here is, I'm good too. I don't think this guy's a liar. I don't think he's self-righteous. What I think is happening here is that this guy is just not aware of the vast gap between human goodness and God's righteousness. And we could do a whole sermon series on this slide alone. But just for a moment, think of the best person in your life, the, most, the, the goodiest of the goody two-shoes, the person who never messes up, great person. What Jesus is saying here is that even that can't stack up to what God is looking for. And I love what it says here. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. He just looked at this guy and he just had love in his heart for him. I actually think that Jesus felt bad for him. I think he really did. He felt bad because this guy was clearly unaware of the perfection that's demanded by God. Because for this guy, he goes, I did those commandments, so I must be good. I did them, so I must be good. But the reality about commandments, folks, is this. Those commandments, they're just like chapter titles. They're just headings. You think you do that? Jesus goes, hold on. Let me talk to you about commandments for a second. He goes, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's what he told the guy. Don't commit adultery, right? He goes, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, as humans, we kind of say, all right, well, I didn't actually cheat on my wife. I didn't actually cheat on my husband. And we think, okay. I'm qualified based on the Ten Commandments. And God goes, oh, that's cute. That's cute. I, I see what you're doing there. But no, no, I, I saw you look at that girl on the beach the other day. Mm, sorry. 
No, that's a problem. You've got, now you've got a problem. This, Jesus is not trying to make anybody feel bad. What Jesus is trying to do is go, stop, listen. The reason this is the way that it is is because you need to understand how far you have missed God's mark for your life. You think you haven't cheated on your wife? I am telling you, that's not going far enough. And yet Jesus doesn't say any of this to this man. It's all going on behind the scenes. He says to him, all right, you think you're good? You think you've done enough? There is one thing you lack, though. Now, because this guy is eager to learn, I imagine he kind of whips out his paper and pen, and he's like, all right, I'm here. Finally, listen, finally. What, what is the one thing that I must do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him and goes, you ready? Okay. Go. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You see, up until this point, Jesus has been unable to get this guy to recognize for himself that he's not perfect. To get this guy to recognize that maybe I haven't lived up to the Ten Commandments in the way that I thought have. To realize for himself that maybe, just maybe, he's not as good as he thought he was. But Jesus puts a spotlight on the money for this man. Because he wants this guy to ask the question, what has the place of priority in your heart? Where's your devotion? What in your life is shaping your day-to-day choices? He's saying, you're a religious leader. You know the commandments. You've told me that. You know that it says you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbors yourself. So, go sell your stuff and give your money to your neighbor. And then come love me, your God. You want eternal life? There it is. What are you going to do? At this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. And that's the end of the story. That's the end of the interaction. This man came to the creator of the universe and asked him about eternal life. And Jesus told him to go sell all his stuff. That's not even the right answer. Right? We look at this as Christians and we go, Jesus, oh man, did you botch this one? You're talking to this guy about his money. He's asking you about what, what went wrong here? See, I think most of us as Christians, if this were us, we would think we failed. We think, I didn't get him to pray the prayer. I didn't get him to repent. He didn't raise his hand. He didn't go forward. Nothing. We think we failed. But what Jesus is showing us in this interaction is that evangelism takes time. We're so interested in rushing it. Billy Graham once said, at least I was told it was Billy Graham. Don't quote me on that. He said it takes 40 people, 40 people, to bring one person to the Lord. 39 who think they failed and one who takes all the credit. Okay? This man left that day. Having not said yes to Jesus, having not any kind of larger faith in Jesus, he left that day. But a seed was planted. And he realized 
that maybe he wasn't as good as he thought he was. Jesus planted that seed. And he's letting us know that sometimes your job is to do just that. Just plant a seed. You don't always have to be closing. So it's the theme of the series, and we ask this every week. How do you follow Jesus' lead? As you go out there into the world, as you're out there talking to people about Jesus, talking to people about your faith, what can we learn from this specific interaction that we can now put into our tool belt, so to speak? The first thing we learn is this, it's, and it's an art form, but we have to learn how to ask questions. I can guarantee you, at some point in your life, someone's going to come up to you and ask you a question. They're going to ask you about your faith. They're going to ask you about Jesus. They're going to ask you about heaven, whatever the case may be. And when someone asks you a question, your natural reaction is to give them an answer, right? Question demands an answer. But here's what I believe. I think answers end discussions, but questions spark dialogue. I think that we can do better than just the answer. I mean, what we're trying to do is to help people get into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're trying to help people think for themselves about the creator of the universe. And asking questions and probing questions at time will help them do that. Let me, give you, let me just give you an example. Let's say you got a friend, and they come up to you and they say, all right, I don't think X is a sin. Do you? And X can be anything, what, behavior, lifestyle, action, what, what, it doesn't matter. You just think of whatever X you want, you put that in there. I don't think X is a sin, do you? A great way, because I get asked this all the time, a great way to answer, why do you ask? Why do you ask that question? And all of a sudden, you've entered into a rich discussion that is full of dialogue. Maybe you can talk about the fact that, hey, you know what, it's interesting, but it's not really up to man to decide what isn't, isn't a sin. I mean, that's all, that's God. I don't think a lot of people know that, but that's a great discussion that you can have. Now, when we hear this idea that, oh gosh, we're going to have to have discussions with people, I think a lot of us start to get nervous because we start to get afraid that, well, what if they ask me something I don't know? Valid concern. A lot of us don't have a great grasp of the Bible. Some of us might not be that articulate with speech. Maybe we get nervous. What if they ask me something I don't know? Here's how you answer that. I don't know. Let's look together. I don't know the answer to that. Let's go look together. And if that person truly wants to learn more about Jesus or your faith, they will take you up on this offer. And you have the chance together to go into the Bible and find the answer for yourself. The other thing we learned from Jesus is that we need to be indirect. So he's talking to this guy and he knows, right off the bat, he knows that this guy has not done all the commandments. He, he knows. He doesn't call him a liar. At no point does Jesus say, you're a sinner. Repent. The only thing he does in this scenario is he helps this man recognize for himself his own sin. And he doesn't go pointing out this guy's sin. All he does, if you notice he talks about God. He talks about the perfection of God, and indirectly, this man recognizes, oh, wow, if that's perfection, I don't match up to that perfection. And yet so many times, Christians and pastors do nothing but yell sinner at people, particularly non-Christians. You're a sinner. 
you need to repent, you will be judged. And I'm not saying that any of that stuff isn't true, but here's what I am saying. That doesn't seem to be how Jesus brings about life change. Because what Jesus is showing us in this specific interaction is that conviction can't be forced. It's got to come from within. You can't guilt anybody into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to help them recognize for themselves and in themselves that maybe there's just some parts of them that God doesn't find pleasing. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's greed. Who knows what it is? But without that internal knowledge for themselves, no one is ever going to feel that felt need for the grace of Jesus Christ. You can't force it. It's got to happen inside them. Here's a tough one you got to do. You have to learn how to expose idols. This is the, the trickiest one of the day. Here's my belief. I think every single person in the world worships something. The question is, is it God? Are you worshiping God? Because anything that is getting your devotion in life that isn't God is an idol. For this man, it was money. This man, it was money. Now let's talk about money for a second here. Money is not bad. A lot of money, not a problem. The love of money is bad. Money might be an idol in your life if it's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning. Money might be an idol in your life if it's the last thing you think about before you go to bed. Money might be an idol if it is getting in the way of your worship with God and what he wants you to do for his kingdom and if it's getting in the way of other people. Money's a huge issue for people. Think about this particular interaction. This man walked away from eternal life because of money. Now, I don't know what's happening later on in his life. I don't know if he digested everything that Jesus said and he came back to him. But right here now, he walked away. And it didn't matter that he was a faithful Jew. It didn't matter that he was a deacon in a church. Jesus looked at him and said, money, my friend, is your priority, not eternal life. And so when you're out there and you're talking to your friends and you're talking to your family and you're talking to coworkers and you're talking about Jesus or you're talking about spiritual things, you need to pray for discernment. What is this word? It's a big theological word. It means you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you the ability, and he will answer this prayer, to give you the ability to just cut through all the noise, to give you the supernatural ability to see what is actually going on in the heart of this person that you're talking to. And when the Holy Spirit reveals that to you in love, you need to point it out. And you got to say, hey, I, I just got to say something to you. I feel like money's an issue for you. I feel like lust might be a problem for you in your life. Now, in light of week one, we talked about before we start pointing out the sawdust in someone else's eye, we got to look at the plank in our own, Jesus said. So just for a moment, let's turn the mirror back on ourselves. Let me ask the Christians in the room, let me ask you a question. What's the one thing you lack? I mean, if you were having a conversation with Jesus, just the two of you, and you say, Jesus, I love you. 
I've said yes to you. I've been baptized. I tithe. I don't miss a Sunday. I go to Bible study. I volunteer at my church. If Jesus were to shine a spotlight into your heart, what idol would pop up? Because let me be honest with you. We all have idols. Is it money? Is it power for you? Is worry controlling your life? Has family perhaps even become a God in your life? I think we as Christians have to continually go before the Lord and say, God, I love you, but please illuminate anything in my life that might be an idol. Anything that is getting in the way of your full power in my life, show me. Give me the strength to remove it so that I can follow you at a greater level. What's the practical? If it's your first week at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen. We want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. Now the reality is that this whole series is one long practical. But I want to give you one thing this week to just meditate on. As you're at your job, okay, you're in the office, you're at school, you're at the gym, wherever the case may be. I really want you to begin meditating on the idea of goodness. This word that we talked about today. What, what, what is goodness? Because I think that for the vast majority of people in this country, goodness is their idol. Goodness has become their God. Goodness is the standard by which they are judging their own eternity. And according to what Jesus said, I'm not sure that's the best idea. So, I want to tell you something that I've never sort of taught from the stage before, but it's something that I've thought about a lot, and I think this is the time to talk about it. You will hear a lot of churches say that people are not good. That there's no goodness found in people. I think that's wrong. I actually think that's a, a misapplication of Scripture. Because the Bible is clear that every single person on this earth is made in the image of God. By that alone means there has to be some good in you. If you only become good when you're a Christian, then how do we account for all the people that are doing wonderful things in this world that are of different religions? People that become doctors and nurses and teachers and volunteers doing all these great things. Clearly, good can exist outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, what I think happens is that churches conflate goodness and righteousness because the Bible does say that no one is righteous. No, not one. And what that means is this. You may be good. You may be a good person. You may do great things for this world. But what you don't have is righteousness. God doesn't demand good. God demands righteous. And if you think your good is going to get you into heaven, Jesus is saying, I got another story for you. 
If you want to be made right with God, you need to be made righteous. And the only way that that happens, folks, is to say yes to Jesus. You can be as good as you want, but he demands righteousness. So I would just say this to anybody in the room. Don't let good get in the way of God. Don't mistake the good that you may do as being the righteousness that God requires. He knew, and he knows us. We're going to work and work and work and work and work, and we're never going to be able to do enough. And he says, stop. I'm going to send Jesus for you. All I need you to do is say yes to him, and I'll do the rest, freeing you up to serve those around you. Don't let good get in the way of your relationship with God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come here today and just talk about this interaction that happened over 2,000 years ago. God, I think so many of us struggle with this idea that being good is good enough. And Lord, I know your tough requirements for goodness aren't there to make us feel bad. But they're there to help us to realize how desperately needful we are of a Savior. That as hard as we work and as good as we think we are, Lord, we cannot make things right with you. That's why you sent your son, Jesus. I pray that today, Lord, every single person in this room might have a better understanding of who your son, Jesus, is. Lord, that he was not sent to this world to judge and condemn. He was sent here to save us, to set us free from the power of sin, to make us new people. I pray, Lord, that today as we leave this room, as we go out into the world, as we take on the mission that you gave us to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can help others see what it means to have a relationship with you. That, yeah, we may be good, but Lord, you need so much more from us. Lord, every single person comes on a Sunday with things going on in their heart. Prayers that they have been praying every single day, sometimes hour by hour, Lord, pleading for you to interact. God, and I just ask that right now, whatever those prayers may be, I pray that you would touch that person at the place of their need. Lord, they have come here seeking you. I pray, God, that you would honor that, that you would touch them, that they could feel your presence and your power in a new way. Lord, that they would know that you are with them right now in whatever is going on. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.